Psalm chapter number two. I'll begin reading in verse number one. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the other most parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. I shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Back in February of last year, the House of Representatives passed a bill called the Equality Act. If it had been made into law, the bill would have eliminated the freedom of religion in the United States by forcing churches and Christian-owned businesses to serve and hire sodomites, transgenders, and the like. In the House debate on this bill, one of the representatives fighting it pointed out the fact that the Bible clearly teaches that these kinds of behaviors are sinful and wrong. After he said this, a representative in favor of the bill got up and said, what any religious tradition ascribes as God's will is no concern of this Congress. The word of God is no concern to the rulers of this country. The word of God is of no concern to the rules of the world at large. We live in a world that openly defies God and his ways. A world that hates our Lord and hates us, his servants. But David reveals to us in Psalm 2 that this rebellion is doomed. This rebellion is vain, for the people of this world do not rebel against a mortal king, but the king of kings. And as such, their insurrection is useless. In this overview of Psalm 2, we will see firstly David's introduction to the psalm and the heathen rebellion. Secondly, we will see the Lord's response. Then we'll see Christ's inheritance and finally, David's applications. By looking at these points this morning, it is my goal that you will see this psalm responds to the heathen rage of the world against God by pointing them to the return of King Jesus. So firstly, we find in verse 1 that David starts off his psalm by asking a question. Verse 1 says, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? I'm going to school to be an English major, and one of the things they teach you about in writing is how to capture your reader's attention in the opening paragraph of your piece. Um, one of the ways that you can grab your reader's attention is by asking them a question. David grabs our attention in this psalm by asking a rhetorical question. He asks, why do the heathen rage? Charles Spurgeon noted in his commentary on the Psalms that the Hebrew verb for rage here refers to an outward expression of agitation rather than an internal one. In other words, the heathens are not just mad in their hearts. They are openly consumed with a violent rage against the Lord. 
David continues his rhetorical question by asking why the people imagine a vain thing. According to Webster's dictionary, the word vain here means fruitless or ineffectual. David's question introduces us to the people who are openly raging and scheming a useless plot against our God. Next, David tells us more about this heathen rebellion and its imaginations. Um, In verse 2, David starts by saying, The kings of the earth set themselves. The kings of the world are allying themselves together against God. Spurgeon said, In determined malice they are arrayed themselves in opposition against God. It was not temporary rage, but deep-seated hate, for they set themselves resolutely to withstand the Prince of Peace. Let us consider for a moment the vile iniquity of this alliance. God alone grants power unto men to rule and govern humanity. Turn over in your Bibles to Psalm chapters, or Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13 and verse 1, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Um, The whole section of scripture here in Psalm, or Romans 13, tells us that God gives the kings and rulers of this world their authority. How vile and heinous is it then that those who God blessed to lead and govern the world would then ally themselves together against him. Those who had power on this earth now join together against the one who gave them power. We see that this alliance of heathen kings only continues in their iniquity in verse 2 of our text, which says, The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. This alliance of wicked kings has gathered together now a plot against the Lord and his anointed. We now see that this rebellion is not just against God the Father, but against his Messiah, God the Son. We know this anointed one is Jesus from other passages of Scripture, one of those being Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, which says, But unto the Son he said, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath appointed, anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Jesus Christ is God's anointed, and both persons of the Trinity are an object of the, heathen's key, of the heathen king's evil schemes. Moving on to verse 3 of our text, the perspective shifts from David to these rebel kings themselves. We get to hear from their own mouths what these kings plotted against our God. They say in verse 3, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. There's a famous book by George Orwell called Animal Farm. Um, The book is a satire about a group of farm animals who band together and rebel against their farm owner to make a communist utopia. Um, The idea that a bunch of cows, pigs, and chickens leading a rebellion against the farmer who owns them is ridiculous, and it's part of what makes Animal Farm a compelling book. But that is the idea that the kings are getting at in our text. 
According to Albert Barnes, the bands and chords in verse 3 are referring to the instruments used to control oxen for plowing. The kings of the world wish to throw off God's sovereign rule over them. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 21. Proverbs chapter 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. This passage clearly says that the Lord has sovereign control over the kings of the earth. But the council of rebels in Psalm 2 openly despise God's rule. They wish to buck God's laws and ways and free themselves from God's control. Their plot is as insane and ridiculous as the animals' plots in Animal Farm. Spurgeon, in analyzing this passage, wrote, What, O ye kings, do ye think yourselves Samsons? And are the bands of omnipotence but as green withs before you? Do you dream that you shall snap to pieces and destroy the mandates of God, the decrees of the Most High, as if they were but tow? These kings have proposed an insane and absurd plot to free themselves from the sovereign, almighty God. These kings speak with the same mind as the citizens in one of Jesus' parables. Turn over with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, and we'll start reading in verse number 11. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable, because he was nigh to Jerusalem, and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for themselves a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a messenger after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. The people of the worlds and the worldly kings have both united together in hatred against the Lord of glory, and they plot to free themselves from the rule of God. Turning back to our text, secondly, we see the Lord's response. In verse 4 of our text, it says, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. The Lord God looks down at all the kings of the earth making their plans to overthrow him, and he laughs. There are only a few times the Bible records God laughing, and it's never a good thing for the objects of his scorn. You don't have to turn there, but I'll just quickly go through a few related verses starting with Psalm, 30, Psalm 37, verses 12 through 13, which says, The wicked plotted against the just and gnasheth upon him with his teeth. The Lord shall laugh at him, for he seeth that his day is coming. Another passage is um, Psalm 59, verse 7 through 8. Behold, they belch out with their mouths, swords are in their lips. For who, say they, doth hear? But thou, O Lord, shall laugh at them, thou shalt have all the heathen in derision. God mocks the idea that any man or council of men 
could come together and plan to overthrow him. Rightfully so, because if you think about it, the idea that the world's leaders could come together and plan to rebel against God is absurd. I like the way that John Phillips described it. He said, man, for all his technology and talents, for all his science and skill, for all his inventions, is still man, mere mortal man. And God is God, eternal, uncreated, self-existent, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, infinite, infallible, holy, high, and lifted up, worshipped by countless angel throngs. The idea that the same God who created the entire universe by speaking it into existence, who created every living thing in the world, who created man from dust, could be defeated by a council of pagan kings is ridiculous. The Lord gives a furious reply to these heathens, starting in verse number five of our text. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. The Lord hates the sin of rebellion. The Lord God told King Saul how much he hates rebellion in 1 Samuel 15. First Samuel chapter 15, first starting verse 22, and it says, And Samuel said, Hath the, Oh, wait, yeah. In this passage, Saul disobeyed the command of God and left alive the king Agag of the Amalekites and took his livestock as spoil. Saul tries to justify his actions in verse 20, where he says, And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and I have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, sheep, and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. Saul did not take the sin of rebellion against the word of God seriously, and he tried to justify his disobedience by saying, I know you told me to destroy the livestock with the Amalekites, Lord, but I thought my way would be better. How does God respond to this? Does God take the sin lightly? In verse 22, it says, And Samuel said, Hath the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices and in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected thee from being king. God despises the sin of rebellion. God judges rebellion and witchcraft as equal levels of sin. This passage in Samuel gives us context for how great the wrath of God was at these heathen kings in Psalm 2 over their rebellion. We find out in verse 6 of our text what God says in his wrath. Yet, I, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Spurgeon described this passage this way. Is it not that 
a grand exclamation. He has already done that which the enemy seeks to prevent. While they are proposing, he has disposed the matter. Jehovah's will is done, and man's will frets and raves in vain. God's anointed is appointed and shall not be disappointed. While the heathen plots and plans to overthrow God's rule over them, God simply responds by declaring his king has already been set in Zion. Now, David is writing this psalm, so whenever he wrote this verse, he was most likely referring to himself, hence the present tense of the passage. At the time of writing, the first David, who was God's anointed king, was ruling in Zion. But this passage also points to the future reign of the better David, King Jesus. God the Father has already chosen David as his king in that time, and no plot of the wicked would destroy the kingdom of David. And, likewise, the Lord has already chosen his son Jesus to rule over the world in the future as king, and no plot or plan of the wicked will ever overcome that. There is a truth we can take comfort in as Christians, that no plot or plan of the wicked will ever triumph over the will of God. God remains sovereign over all things, and we can be comforted in that no matter how desperately wicked the plans and schemes of the wicked may be, they cannot overthrow our Lord's will. This passage gives hope to us who live in a fallen and wicked world, full of heathen kings and evil schemes. You can take comfort this morning, Christian, that no matter what evil the people of our day may dream up, that the Son of God has been set in Zion as king over all. Thirdly, we learn about Christ's inheritance. So far in this psalm, we have heard from the perspectives of David, the Council of Kings, and God the Father. Now, beginning in verse 7, we switch perspectives to Jesus himself. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. This is a very deep passage of scripture, and we could end up going to a great deal of error if we're not careful in interpreting it. The good news is that we, know, we can know what this verse means because the Bible interprets it for us. Whenever you are trying to determine what a passage of the Bible says, the best interpreter for scripture will always be scripture. Rather than forcing a framework of interpretation upon the verse, like Dad's been warning about for the past couple of weeks, we can go to the divinely inspired authors of scripture to know what our passage means. For the purposes of the sermon today, I would like to focus on two things we can know that this verse means. First, this verse points us to the deity of Christ. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, 
sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. The author of Hebrews uses verse 7 of our text to demonstrate that Jesus Christ was God. The author rejects the idea that Jesus was an angel, pointing out that God never said to an angel, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. The author of Hebrews lets us know that verse 7 of our text proves that Jesus Christ was God, because God would call no angel his only begotten son. The other thing we can learn from verse 7 is that Jesus Christ was also fully man. Turn over to Acts chapter 13. In this passage, Paul is preaching to the men of Antioch, and he's retelling the history of the people of Israel. Paul says, The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with a high arm brought he them out of it. Paul then goes on to tell how God brought the people of Israel into Canaan and gave them the judges and then put in place Saul as king. Picking up in verse number 22, Paul says, And when he had removed him, Saul, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony, and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. And this man seed how God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. Paul is making the argument in this passage that Jesus was truly man, because God promised that through David's seed, a Savior would rise, that seed being Jesus. <coughs> Paul continues by describing the life and crucifixion of Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. In verse 29, it says, And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead, and he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem which are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, and that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Paul has connected the dots for us here. David died and his body deteriorated, as Paul describes a little further down in this passage in Acts. The Savior, God promises, was a man, but he could not be David, as Paul points out in verse 35. Whether, wherefore, he said also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thy holy one to see corruption. The Savior was a man, but he could not be any ordinary man like David, because an ordinary man would die and stay dead. Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again, being the eternal Son of God, thus proving he was both God and man, and the Savior. Psalm 2, verse 7, is the testimony of the fact that Jesus was the God-man. <coughs> Paul proves to us that Jesus was the only man of the seed of David to whom the promise, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, could apply to. 
Because only Jesus did not see corruption, but rather rose from the dead as our victorious Savior. From the interpretations of both Paul and the author of Hebrews, we can know that verse 7 of Psalm 2 proves both the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. Verse 7 stands as a testimony of the fact that Jesus Christ is the anointed one, the chosen king. God rebukes the rebellion of the wicked kings of the earth by establishing his son as the king of kings. Returning to our text, Jesus now tells us what God the Father has promised him. In verse number 8, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the other most parts of the earth for thy possession. At the greatest extent of its power, the British Empire commanded over 13.71 million square miles of land which is around a quarter of the total land area of the earth. At that time in history, the British Empire also ruled over 23% of the entire earth's population. The British Empire was one of the biggest empires in all of human history. <coughs> However, God the Father promised Jesus Christ in verse 8 a far larger kingdom than any human empire has ever seen. Jesus Christ will reign on earth as king over all of the earth. This passage serves both as a promise to Jesus of his inheritance and reign, and as a continued rebuke of the heathen kings by God. If you look back to verses 5 and 6, it says, Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. The Lord's main response to the heathen king's rebellion was to declare he had already set his anointed one in Zion. God's response to the rebellion was to shut down their hopes and dreams of overthrowing God by revealing to them King Jesus. We see that God continues to do that in verse number 8. God promises Jesus that all of the heathen nations and the uttermost parts of the earth are his possession. God promises his anointed one that the heathen will be subject to his reign, despite their plots and plans. The heathen will rage and imagine vanity, but they will nonetheless fall before the feet of King Jesus. The whole world shall be the Lord Jesus' kingdom, and all the nations of the earth shall worship him. Thank you. This promise of Jesus' reign is reiterated throughout the scripture. Turn over to Daniel chapter number 7. Daniel chapter number 7, verse number 13. And it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came into the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that's what shall not be destroyed. 
Here we see another prophecy confirming the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. Daniel tells us that all people, nations, and languages shall serve King Jesus. The reign of the true king shall last for all eternity, and no plot or scheme of the heathen will ever destroy it. I'll point out one other verse in Psalm, uh, one other reference in Psalm 72. Psalm 72, starting in verse number 7. In his days shall the righteous flourish, an abundance of peace, so long as the moon endureth. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea, and from the river unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Sheba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. If you would like to read it on your own, the whole of Psalm 72 is filled with various prophecies concerning the reign of King Jesus. But we see that specifically, this passage reaffirms God the Son's reign over all the earth and over all his enemies. Speaking of Jesus' enemies, Jesus tells us the other promise God gave him in our text, in verse number 9. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This promise directly spells out the end of the heathen nations. The Lord God is a merciful and long-suffering God. But one day, God's long-suffering towards the sins of this world will end. Spurgeon, in his commentary, said, Jehovah has given to, us anoint, given to his anointed a rod of iron with which he shall break rebellious nations in pieces. And despite their imperial strength, they shall be but as potter's vessels, easily dashed into sivers when the rod of iron is in the hand of the omnipotent Son of God. The heathen will be destroyed easily, and they shall be rewarded with the judgment they so richly deserved. While this judgment has not yet happened, the Bible gives us a glimpse of this judgment in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11. When I saw, and I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Here we see that Jesus Christ will return to the earth as king, 
and destroy the Antichrist and those who serve him. All the plots and plans of the rebel kings and heathen nations will fail, and Christ will utterly annihilate them. Jesus Christ came to this earth first meek and lowly as the Savior of his people. One day soon, Christ will return again as king and conqueror, and will destroy all those who have sinned against and blasphemed him. Jesus himself assures this judgment will happen in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse number 42. Jesus said unto them, Did ye never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you, and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Jesus Christ gives a warning to all the nations that have blasphemed and rejected him. Those who have defied and rejected the name of God shall perish. God has called upon the whole world to repent of its sins and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And for 2,000 years now, the heathen nations have rejected him. There will be a time soon in which the wrath of God at this rebellion will be fulfilled, and Jesus shall return to crush the rebels in this earth. Fourthly, we see that David returns one last time to give the heathen king some advice. Verse 10. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. David tells the heathen kings who have so vainly plotted against our Lord to be wise. The Lord has just finished speaking, and he has prophesied the doom of the heathen. David now directly addresses the heathen kings and tells them to be instructed. We can think of this as David's applications for the word. God laughed at the foolishness of the kings, and now David tells them to hear wisdom. Now, you might have listened to this sermon and agreed that the heathen kings ought to listen to this wisdom. You might have completely agreed that those awful heathen kings over there were wicked sinners and they deserved the wrath of God. You might have said to yourself, those heathen treacherous pagans deserve what they're going to get. Jesus will come back and destroy those evil kings and rulers. If you thought those things, I'd like to direct your attention to the fact that the kings are not the only sinners addressed in this psalm. Turn back to verse 1. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The heathen kings sinned against God, absolutely. But so did the wicked people. If this psalm applies just as much to the wicked rules of our day, then it applies to every wicked citizen as well. Now isn't that a terrifying thought? It's easy enough to read this passage of scripture and rejoice as Jesus destroys the evil rulers and the heathen kings, but it might not be as easy to read if you realize you deserve that same destruction as well. 
Every person who has sinned against God, both small and great, both young and old, both powerful and powerless, deserve to be shattered like pottery by the judgment of King Jesus. If you are a wicked sinner here tonight, or today, you need to hear King David's advice just as much as the heathen kings do. So what wisdom does David give the heathen kings? He gives them the beginning of wisdom in verses 11 and 12. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest ye be angry, and ye be perish from the way, where his wrath is kindled but a little. David tells the heathens to do a 180. The heathens are heading down the path of destruction, and they need to course correct. Instead of raging against God and plotting against him in vain, they need to serve him with fear and trembling. Not fear as in terror, but to serve God with a holy awe and reverence to him. They need to kiss the Son of God, or in modern terminology, honor and salute the Son of God. The heathen kings need to abandon their vain and useless plots against God and turn away from their evil rage and honor the Son of God instead. If you are a rebellious sinner here today, if you are an enemy of the King of Kings, if you are rebelling against the Lord, turn from your wickedness and serve God as he has commanded. You cannot serve the Lord in fear and trembling by your own power. You cannot salute or honor the Son by your own means. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse number 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. God has made himself clear on this matter. You cannot serve the Lord in yourself. You cannot reverence the name of Christ in your flesh, for your carnal flesh is stained with sin. You must turn away from your sin and trust in the power of Jesus Christ to save you. You must repent of your rebellion against God and his ways and trust Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to save you from your sins. Only if you have been born again by the power of God the Spirit can you serve him with fear and trembling. If you have not repented of your sins, repent now. Verse 12 of our text warns us that you're running out of time. Kiss the son, lest ye be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Though you have rejected God in your heart and rebelled against his holy laws, God will still have mercy on those who repent. The Lord God is a compassionate and long-suffering God, and he will still save your soul despite your wickedness against him. Repent now, for the time of mercy is finished, and Christ Jesus returns to the earth as conqueror instead of Savior. Repent now and trust in Jesus Christ to save your soul from the judgment you so richly deserve. 
David closes out his psalm by giving those who trust in Jesus a word of hope. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. If you rage in your heart against God, if you take wicked counsel against his anointed, if you imagine vain plots to overthrow his sovereignty, you will be judged with the heathen kings by King Jesus. However, if you repent of your rebellion, if you trust in Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, you will be blessed. Trust in the Son of God who died on the cross to forgive wicked sinners, to save you, and you will be blessed. It is my prayer that those who hear this message and are saved shall know that God has blessed you and that those here who are lost would repent before the coming judgment of the king. Let's stand and be dismissed with a word of prayer. Now I'll ask Brother Harold to lead us in a word of prayer, please. Our Father,